Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, that's your note. So laws against money laundering were created to use against organized crime. What I read is during the period of prohibition in the U.S. during the 30s. And so organized crime at that point had received a major boost from prohibition and a large source of new funds that were obtained from illegal sales of alcohol. And so the successful prosecution of Al Capone at the time on tax evasion brought new emphasis by, I guess, the U.S. at that point in law enforcement agencies to track and confiscate money, but um, existing laws against tax evasion could not be used once gangsters started paying their taxes. Um, and so the quote, always follow the money, has been sound advice, I guess, in law enforcement and political circles since then for decades. Um, but nevertheless, tracking the flows of illicit funds generated by drug trafficking and organized crime and analyzing the magnitude and the extent to which these are laundered through the world's financial systems remains quite a daunting task. Um, and so just as an opener here, could, could you give kind of an explainer to the listeners of this podcast, what is the global impact of money laundering today and maybe perhaps more local impact uh, based on where you're doing most of your work? Um, that's a great question. And I, I think one thing that I'll maybe kick things off to back it up a little bit is what is uh, uh, money laundering or proceeds of crime. Um, you gave one great example uh, related to tax evasion, which is known as a predicate offense in Canada or a felony in the U.S. Um, the more severe crimes underneath the criminal code whereby property can be elicited from. Um, that's an irony that you also raised that example because it kind of shows how the power of, of movies and, and cross-cultural things. In the U.S., tax evasion uh, has been uh, a predicate offense for over a century, whereas in Canada, we're just approaching a decade uh, where it's been an offense. It wasn't a, it wasn't an offense in Canada uh, prior to that. And um, those are some of the things that are kind of, uh, when you end up saying, well, how's things different from one country to an X? Things like that add up. Um, so again, finance, uh, money laundering and proceeds of crime, it really is any kind of uh, property that's derived out of uh, out of those things. And, and I broaden it to property and not just money flow. So, so I want the listeners to really understand this is beyond just big bundles of hockey bags of cash, although those are often in the case. <clears throat> and why do you think about cash um, and the impacts um, and getting to that impacts question is because cash isn't traceable. Um, and the follow the money quote that you had is bang on. We need the traceability to understand that the property was derived from clean sources and not criminal sources. So those are the key elements of, uh, of the goals uh, of the fight against financial crime and uh, is to get to that traceability. And the impacts has, have, have been quoted in global reports as literally being in the trillions. It, it's, it's been um, some estimates are as low as one or 2% of GDP, others are up to 5% or more of GDP. That is immense. Um, the, the other element that you touched on that, that we'll get into our, our, our talk a bit more a little bit later on is that pay the taxes. Um, as many of you, uh, I'm sure, have seen some great shows on the different uh, networks, um, some of the strategies now is, is really commingling uh, because once you commingle funds that are from proceeds of crime into normal enterprises and normal businesses, it makes it extremely difficult for those um, gatekeepers of the, uh, of, uh, of the good of financial institutions and real estate agencies and other players to, uh, to detect and report for law enforcement what's dirty and what's clean. If it's all intermixed, you it makes it really difficult. So as they, the, so criminals learned, um, maybe that wasn't a good example way back when of, look, here's a great example where we caught the bad guys through tax evasion. We nailed Al Capone, but then you taught all the rest of the criminals that this is how you hide your money is through legitimate enterprises and pay your taxes. So those are some of the ironies that kind of come into that mix, but there's a lot of great um, battlers like me out there. Um, that uh, are, are in this good fight uh, to try to keep it at bay. 
so there's different guidances, I guess, that have been put into place, like FATF being one organization that um, many, I guess, countries and regulators um, implement the, the the laws or the, I guess, the, the guidance that, that they push forward. So it'd be great to understand that a little bit more and how that applies guidance to, to a global scale as well. The other thing as well, you just mentioned a comment about um, perhaps making it easier for, for future criminals to, to know how to launder money. One of the things I think about a lot too is if part of the guidance is to conduct due diligence in the process of onboarding um, customers or offering them financial services, we refer to this as know your customer, KYC. Um, some of the things I think about sometimes too is that um, are there opportunities around KYC? Because it seems like KYC is mm. a way to legitimize uh, kind of people that are looking to, to launder money and move them from the dark side to the to the <laughs> to the not dark side. Starting from your, your last point forward, uh, moving backward, um, not everybody's always going to be in the dark side. Um, people often, just like uh, in the movies again, uh, which is fun to, to do cultural references, people turn to the dark side when they're when they're often given uh, either opportunity and and it kind of the the glamour of it kind of pulls them away or whether if they've been put in that side due to uh, a variety of different reasons of addictions mental challenges uh like personal challenges uh people are often not criminals at heart um into that mix and uh so but your relationships that you have with people are often much more longstanding. So when you first set up a business relationship with someone, everything can be per perfectly fine, very, uh, quite good, uh, quite legal. Everything's on, on, on the up and up for decades. And then all of a sudden that person's put in a difficult position. They're being, um, they're being um, uh, bribed or other different elements could happen into that mix. And that, and that forces them to look for opportunities to address those issues. Um, but moving backwards, like what laws and what types of things are applicable into the mix, the way that we're structured and what is the financial action task force, the FATF is a global body um, that was set up um, by member countries that, uh, that just about everybody signed up into, uh, most, uh, most of everybody, and they set up recommendations in order to strengthen the financial system and the system of interaction so that way governments know what are the boundaries. Because we don't want to create um, certain pockets of opportunity for criminal elements. We want to have a level playing field for both commercial benefit, but also to, um, to fight crime in the most effective way. So, so they set up recommendations. They're not laws, they're not binding, but they're very, very influential. Because if a government does not attend to those recommendations in a reasonable way, and they're, they're measured every four years or so, or five years by other countries, on this topic, if they're not following that, then then they get named and shamed. And so nobody wants to be on that name and shame list. So that's what forces uh, indirectly countries to implement laws that are aligned with other countries to set that level playing field. And that includes what information do you collect about people and what does traceability look like of that know your client experience, especially with the global approach that we have money movements, people move. It happens all the time. In Canada, we have a, a healthy immigration rate on an ongoing basis. And, and people have residency in multiple countries uh, for a variety of different reasons. And, and that's perfectly legal. For you to do international trade, you need to have feet on the ground in many countries sometimes. And that means moving resources around. Well, how do you know those resources are clean or dirty? That is a challenge for a lot of organizations in managing that. And level playing fields of common KYC, know your client's information. Sorry, going to try to be careful about the jargon. Um, and making sure, and that's more than just collecting your identification uh, is a good basic thing. It's asking what is your occupation? And that's a proxy for how did you get your money? And is it reasonable how much money you have? Um, asking about your spouse or partner asking about um, where you live, um, your tax residency, all of these different elements that all trace back to traceability of uh, how do I know you are Matt um, how I, uh, versus me being Gene. Um, is Gene my real name? <laughs> and traceability of, uh, of making sure uh, you know who you're dealing with.
There's a lot of action in the technology solutioning sector as it relates to know your customer and, and anti-money laundering solutions. Um, so technology, I guess, has the potential to make anti-money, to make money laundering harder um, and, and have more traceability and, and track this stuff. Technology potentially has the potential to make uh, money laundering um, and terrorist financing easier, cheaper, more efficient. What, what are some, I guess, of the, the pros and cons of uh, these new tech solutions? Like, do they enable the scaling of, of money laundering and kind of where do you see the, the ways that technologies could help and reduce it versus kind of some of the areas that cause potential risks of, of where we're going towards? That, that's a great question. Uh, technology is a sweet spot and uh, and part that's very near and dear to my heart and how it intersects with financial crime on, on the international stage as well as making it real for local players. And it is something that is a bit of an arms race in many regards because there's some, so many amazing tools that have come about. So you can have one tool that can make things really easy for people. Uh, so for example, we could build uh, technology bots that can scour the internet to find you the best value and the best price for a shopping item. Well, that same bot tool with the adjustment encoding could be uh, also shopping around to see if they can get you the best financial service. Well, that same bot and tool could then be used to see how can we detect the potential weak spot amongst financial institutions to see who has the weakest KYC to create to use art, uh, to use uh, synthetic identities to to create fake accounts and then try to move money around in an illicit fashions and and hide the proceeds of crime by having thousands and thousands of people like like just a few decades ago like or not even that that far ago um, one strategy by criminals is to have is to hire a whole bunch of gang members that would go in and open up as many bank accounts or other accounts as they can in order to spread out uh, funds around uh, out there. And for those, uh, depending on your age, whether if you relate to the cartoon, it's called Smurfing. Um, so it's that entire concept where you have a whole bunch of, of, uh, of people going out, uh, out there and, and spreading the funds out there. And then that basically um, could end up taking uh, drug dealers $100,000 in uh, proceeds of crime that they, that they earn over a few months and makes it clean. And, and, and make them look like a successful business person, um, that they spread the money out and then it comes back again in the guise of a fake business. Um, and so those types of techniques um, with technology can empower it quite a bit. Now, there's other technology tools that are being used of advanced analytics and advanced traceability to counteract that. And those are the pieces that I'm really excited about. Uh, so I think there's both uh, the opportunity and uh, but also the threat are both equally there for organized crime. There's a tremendous opportunities on their side to uh, to embattle us even further. Um, and, and that's that's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing with. But for the, let's say, inefficient or less experienced criminal, um, the, there's some great opportunities to catch them earlier on before they get big. And uh, I think that's that's where I'm excited about is try to make it really, really difficult on the criminals. Um, and then, uh, and then we'll use concerted efforts together with, uh, um, and, and other strategies in order to catch all of them. I wasn't aware that Papa Smurf is a money launderer, but, uh, and running a whole ring there. He talked like the Godfather sometimes, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to move towards digital identity because I think the intersection of uh, AML and digital ID is uh, a quite interesting one that's worth uh, spending a little bit of time on. Um, and I know the, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force that we've been talking about a little bit, put out some guidance, I think just after the start of COVID in early 2020, um, putting out guidance around digital identity and all of this kind of around the premise that this, you know, may be quite beneficial as the number of digital transactions are kind of rapidly growing. Um, they've probably grown even more rapidly over the past couple of years, dealing with a lot of remote uh, transactions that need to happen. Um, they kind of, they estimated by 2022, and again, I don't know if it's gone higher at this point, but they estimated that 60% of global GDP will be digitized. It's just crazy. Um, 
do you mind shedding a bit of light on the guidance that the Financial Action Task Force put out on digital ID and kind of where you see the intersection of digital ID and AML just advancing the prevention of financial crime? Yeah, by all means. Uh, that uh, guidance is near and dear to my heart uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons why is like one of my last trips I did overseas uh, was discussing that guidance with the working group that was working on it. Um, including the head of the working group. And I was uh, given the privilege of sharing my draft uh, white paper that I published on, on the topic of the digital, ID, uh, digital identification methods testing and AML programs that was published by ACAMS. The draft went to that committee and the key premises of what I was raising there is um, digital ID is all about uh, traceability and le higher levels of assurance, um, which take more resources being lined up with the uh, risk-based approach of the anti-money laundering fight. Um, and that is where I think we have a great opportunity because whenever you're trying to apply a new system, a new practice, you need to have the business sense of that. You need to have the customer friction and the customer experience in mind. It, it needs to be within the ecosystem, within the environment. And the same thing's true with anti-money laundering. You want to put the right amount of resources in the right targeted area because everyone has scarcity of resources that needs to make sense. And I think it's really well aligned to put those two concepts together. Now, the challenge, like we, we had mentioned, uh, he had mentioned that it came out just as COVID came out. And uh, I love to say that that was fat of being responsive, that instantly they came out with a hundred page guidance within two months of a pandemic being suspected um, and within two days of it being launched. <laughs> um, but it was um, a work in progress of easily five, five years or more. And um, the draft was the prior October, which although was really, really good, it did need adjustment. And that's hence why it was a draft. It was launched in the October beforehand. And um, the area that I was really happy to see that they strengthened was that concept of the aligning the risk-based approach with levels of assurance and also acknowledging and recognizing sources of truth outside of governments. Um, so those are some of the areas of, of great uh, excitement and opportunity into the mix um, that, uh, that I was pleased to see. So the importance of this guidance, so okay, big deal, a big fluffy organization um, that, that, that has a lot of great smart people in it, recommend something. So, so, so what? Who cares? Well, what it does is it acknowledges and recognizes that digital traceability of identity has a place in our financial system and has a place um, in, again, the more broader sense of property. So that allows our commerce underpinning to acknowledge and accept digital methods as being reasonable. And in fact, they could be even stronger than reasonable. It's actually something you should do, not just can do. Um, and, th and that helps empower commerce, especially on the international scale. There, are, there was a lot of driving forces from EIDAS, from the European Union, that were at that table and very active at that table. And the challenge, though, we had was we had to make sure that the, uh, that table represented countries that were not as farther not, not as far along in the regulatory or the framework approach and also had different philosophical perspectives of what ID should and could look like for a country like how ID looks like in in some more uh, let's say um, uh, much more um, government centered uh, regimes such as China um, or, or other regimes whereby they had, they're much more uh, adamant about putting that infrastructure in um, versus the free market economy that the U.S. has on the other side of the spectrum. You need to write guidance that can empower those as well as impoverished nations that can't afford um, in setting that up for their people. So how do you do all of those things? So that's why it has to stay high level. It has to stay philosophical but it has to be empowering. And I think that's what they did, which was uh, a really tough job. And, 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 and they acknowledge themselves, it's a first edition, right? So things from first edition, um, especially when you're talking about the intersection with technology need to evolve. So you, you touched a bit of, upon identity assurance here, and maybe we stick on that for a couple of minutes. So 
Um, the assumption here would be the more sources of identity would be the better because um, I think people often look at, oh, digital identity is a complex thing to look at, but I, when we're focusing simply on kind of the, the right government regulated industries or, or markets, um, we often just look at the government ID and, and everyone just kind of sits there and waits for um, governments to, to issue digital IDs to their citizens. There's been a boom, talked about this a bit on previous episodes, a boom in the market of these uh, technology solution providers that allow you to just digitize or gain more assurance um, um, kind of on a claim that someone is making about themselves, um, about an identity that they're, they're claiming to be within a regulated or government system. Um, but the assumption here would be, okay, more sources of identity is the better. It would make it harder for criminals to, to compromise them. Um, what are some of the sources that you kind of think about and look at outside of just those government issued sources that perhaps could be layered on top of each other to give more assurance to therefore hopefully prevent more illicit uh, financial transactions? Um, I, I think, again, you're, you're hitting on many themes and, and uh, I'll see which, uh, which parts I can uh, uh, work through this. Um, I, I think the, the first piece is let's, let's back up to a certain uh, spectrum of how do we know you are Matt? How do we know I am Gene? Uh, is, is really taking a look at um, forming the unique resolution of a person and then going through trusted sources. And governments have been our, uh, one of the largest institutions in our lives, really. So they end up being that big trusted source. But there's others as well. There's utility providers. There's financial institutions. There's professional organizations. Um, like the, there's, um, there's groups that pull together multiple financial institutions like credit bureaus that have information about us. There's all of the, there's many different sources and capabilities. Um, when it comes to technology and technology networks, that brings a, a whole myriad of new trusted custodians of information. Um, who has the most information on you? Is like, like how much information do the different fan companies have of Facebook, Amazon, Google, um, and, um, and, uh, and other providers have on you compared to, and know where you are, know where you live, know your features and, and um, know your devices and device fingerprinting and use these different technology tools to know who you are. And those same tools um, and other custodians are used by, um, by the government itself in order to, uh, in, in order to move forward um, in, in understanding who you are. And, and things start really from that um, relationship standpoint of who do you trust? And one of the people you trust right at the onset is, well, you trust your parents when you're a baby. Um, you, as soon as you're born, um, not only do you trust your parents, but the government trusts your parents that they go to your parents once they see the evidence of a baby, um, they, you have the first set of documentation called the birth certificate that gets established. And that's where the naming happens. And that's where they take evidence of the timestamp and date stamp of when you were born and the location of where you're born. You have your first forms of resolution happening, um, whereby you're using relationships with two known parties being the parents that have been ID'd themselves with their health cards in order to pay for it, or they're in the, if it's in the US or other locations, and maybe the credit card um, to, to, to pay for the birth and in the mix. And then the next step uh, end up being is you end up having that first record that's held uh, in custody for you. And then that could also be used to register you for taxation purposes, for tax benefits and, and register you for school eventually. And then one thing happens to another and you start building up your identity uh, which is really the sum of your trust custodian relationships into those mixes. I think one of the interesting nuances and challenges that identity networks and frameworks and everyone else is working through is how much weight do you put in in the integrity of all of those different plethora of records that you have and you establish and you work through over time. And, um, and, and when is one enough versus two being better versus three being better? And what are the different features to all of those mixes, which is probably a full hour podcast on its own. <laughs> so, um, so to me, I think that achieving trust through multiple reliable sources is critical. And 
then how does that work in the marketplace and bringing this back to legal uh, to proceeds of crime? Um, there's different degrees of know your client minimum standards of how well should you know someone is who they say they are to do different things. So if you're opening up a securities account and you're about to give $100,000 to be held in your in trust in your name with that securities account, how much information so that securities dealer know about you related to that money? So that is kind of the next question. And some of the, for some organizations, that's codified in law and regulations and guidance and best practices saying, well, you need to collect their driver's license or their passport. And uh, it would also be good to have their banking information to know where they established a bank account. That if they're doing, uh, if they're borrowing money from you on margin uh, in the security space, you should know their credit bureau uh, details. Um, and then you should also know about their spouse or other people if they're also co-investing with them. So all of those different pieces of the type of information to be collected are, are, are nuances. Uh, you should get their employer records so that, that employer-based verified credential can come in handy <laughs> as soon as that gets developed and more actively in the marketplace. Um, things like that, all of those different tools um, are, are pieces that all kind of come together. And the multiple tools that you have are being recognized more and more. Um, in the Canadian marketplace, um, it's, it's really well-defined. It's written out in regulations to say you have a choice of any of the following three methods or a combination thereof to ID someone. Um, and uh, so some of them are standalone where there's high integrity like government ID and others are um, a mixture of, um, of some of these, uh, uh, these elements recognizing if you have multiple sources of truth together, that's, that's reasonable. That's such an interesting topic, and you're, you're right. We could talk about this for uh, a, an entire podcast on its own. Um, it's interesting to think about the other kind of sources of truth, and they're probably changing year over year, right? So you mentioned the, the technology companies, FANG, the amount of data that's available and the reli reliability of the, this data that's available is uh, a continuously changing landscape. Um it's interesting to think a little bit about what are these other things outside of, and you mentioned a few of them. We, we talk about uh, government uh, issuance. We talk about credit bureau information, telco information, um, stuff like that, where a telco probably knows my, well, that they verified my address. They also know my IP address and certain network things. And you start to think about kind of these alternative, alternative um, methods of, of providing assurance or authenticating people. You touched on device fingerprinting a little bit as well um i'd be interested to just well learn a bit more about device fingerprinting and talking a little bit more about that for the audience here as well as maybe some of these alternate kind of ways of doing identification and authenticating people and um one of i guess in, in the digital wallet space um in the digital credentialing space one, one of the things that um is an ongoing conversation of figuring out what the best way of doing this is, is that um, if we're all looking to uh, achieve kind of user-centric experiences, we want people to be in control and have ownership of their credentials, of their data. One of the core properties of that as well as we wanna ensure that uh, we unlock portability so they're not locked into a specific vendor so I can move my data around from wallet to wallet or from vendor to vendor, depending how I wanna do so. Um, you always kind of have that same problem when I'm moving over is how do I reachieve that same level of assurance on a person's identity so that I could still bind credentials that they have to kind of this new identity or copy of identity or however we want to call it. So it's a lot of topics uh, in there, but maybe mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that specifically, um, but also just looking at stuff like device fingerprinting and some of these alternate kind of methods of increasing assurance around a digital ID. I, I'm a big fan. And, um, I, and one thing I'll, I'll call out is that I, I don't think there's a well-defined um, minimum or maximum standard related to device fingerprinting. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I very easily can be. Uh, it's an area I'm still studying myself, uh, but is a fantastic opportunity um, that... Uh, has been utilized behind the scenes that most people don't know. Like, uh, like uh, there's so, a lot of institutions where I've come across the, um, a, a client or, or, um, uh, or an individual in the past 
that has said, well, why can't I just uh, follow these three steps and look at these three things, um, sort of like XYZ online financial institution, and I should have enough to proceed and, um, and uh, should not really have a big high risk profile. And I call out to them that, that well, are they doing device fingerprinting? Are they researching all of the following other attributes that are coming off of your phone and creating that, that very unique traceable profile and then building that library up in order to make sure it's the same person coming back? Because instead of just getting um, one or two um, uh, little attributes of a, of a login code and a password, um, so, some individuals, a lot of individuals out there think that that is their security. This, this, this top secret password that is a, a 10 character uh, a combobulation is their security that protects them completely from their bank. When really at the end of the day, every single bank, um, at least in the Canadian marketplace um, of the larger banks, all have some form of device fingerprinting at varying degrees of standards that mitigates fraud risk, but also financial crime risk. And these things are quite important tools into that. And one thing I'm a little bit nervous about is that uh, there's a little bit of an over-reliance in my personal view on MF multi-factor authentication that just binds one device, uh, control of one device based on control on another device. And um, because what happens if you didn't have a strong enough level of assurance the with the first device, now that person has full control across multiple devices um, or can uh, more easily uh, adapt in, in a higher risk uh, uh, account takeover. Um, and the cloning of devices could be a, a bit of a risk and where there's other tools with regards to the advanced device fingerprinting areas. Now, some people may say, well, okay, well, what level of detail do you need to do a device fingerprint? Do you need five variables? Do you need two variables? Do you need three variables? Like what, what is it that, um, that is enough? And that is a very loaded question. Um, like how safe do you feel walking down uh, a downtown street um, with like just in general, like, uh, like, do you feel um, uh, it depends on what street that you're on? Like if you are in a crime laden uh, uh, city and um, and you're the wrong um, uh, you're the wrong group in, in that city that you don't belong, that's all in fact has gangs controlling of you, you're going to be robbed within five minutes. Uh, without, with the, without the proper tools in your tool chest. Um, you're, you may not be safe. So how safe uh, depends on how many tools that you need. And especially with the accessibility of data channels and data flows on the global side, and also state actors even attacking certain levels of uh, trust custodians and, inform and, 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 and the like, that is a big, big challenge that, that we could be faced with. Um, and you may think, well, my organization, like uh, a state actor is not going to attack me. I'm too small. I'm not going to have the money flows. It would, it would stick out like a sore thumb if all of a sudden I had 5,000 new accounts opening up. Um, like there's no question there. But what they'll do, uh, an organization can do, is they recognize you are a custodian of information and a custodian of trust. And you may be a custodian of property, but they may not attack your property, but they'll attack your information. And they'll use that information to create other synthetic identities with other organizations. They'll use that information to do account takeovers at other groups and learn from you. So that you could still be an attack vector into that regard, um, from, uh, even if you're a very smaller player. So these, the level of assurance that you need, um, I like device fingerprinting. Uh, I would say the more tools, the, the, the better um, with regards to the, um, the number of uh, data points that you would do within your device. But you do have to think about it in an intelligent, dynamic way because people change their phones, they change their tablets, they change their different points of connection uh, on an ongoing basis. So you have to strike the right balance. So I think there it's working with the right smart vendors in order to see how do you evolve that. And then maybe device fingerprinting combined with like um, things we'll talk about later, like open ID and, and, uh, and mobile to mobile security tools and, and, and uh, a variety of different other elements. And also recognizing that some of the trust custodians that you're, 
that your client may be working with also have these same tools under their tool chest. So it may already be coming to you with a reasonable level of trust if you're using some of the other tools that we'll talk about later about open banking. I really like the toolbox analogy, and I, I think uh, you, you you like that one as well. And, and I, I really like the analogy because it's, um, again, not everyone's going to have the same tools inside of their toolbox. It's very contextual to what they're doing. Um, I think unlike a toolbox that you have sitting in your garage, uh, these toolboxes are going to be a lot more dynamic, and uh, you need to be dynamic as, as things are rapidly changing. Um, one of the other areas that I think is important for, and I know, I know you you think this as well, is important for people to have in their toolbox is the ability to do um, certain identity verifications around legal entities. And this ties us back to the whole money laundering problems is that a lot of money laundering seems to happen through uh, legal entities, whether I'm, I'm investing in, in property or real estate and stuff like that. What is the current state? I think we have a good understanding of where things are at for, for doing the verification of uh, people like you and I, but to do the verification of legal entities, there's seems to be a popular area that's, that's growing. We're seeing new announcements coming out of Glyph. Just one came out last week with the, the verifiable legal entity. They're trying to build an ecosystem around legal identifiers and make that available to people. Um, what is the current state of the whole legal entity digital identity area and um, where possibly could could we see some improvements or further enhancements? Um, I, I think the current state, the short answer there is um, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Um, and uh, one of the themes that you'll end up seeing, and this is, uh, this is not a poke at Canada, this is an international uh, acknowledgement. Um, in that legal entities have longstanding been easy, easy targets because getting back to that Smurf analogy, if that Smurf can all be controlled by one person without having people get in the way, then it makes it a lot easier. So think about um, not having 99 individual free thinking Smurfs that you have to coerce and influence and, and make sure that they're doing the right thing and not saying the wrong thing and not tipping off and, and giving a, things away. Well, if those 99 Smurfs could be 99 robot Smurfs that you can program because they're all legal entities underneath your control, then you know it's not going to break because you're the one that did it and you, you set that template and you got that thing through. So the traceability for financial crime is um, a legal entity is a person under the law that can open up an account, move money around, all these different things. And uh, just as we touched on earlier, they can easily be representative of businesses that look reasonable. Um, and that one business could have four different sets of books and records where we're one set with each financial institution and one set goes to, um, goes to uh, pay their taxes in the proper way. And the other three sets are just mirrored copies of it. And that funnels through three sets of uh, three to four sets of uh, of uh, proceeds of crime of the total amount of money flows. So those things can be a really big challenge into the mix, and that mean that's an oversimplification. But uh, the the big piece of what we're trying to accomplish again is that traceability piece, and the way that traceability works is is recognizing that we're not all digital in every scale, uh, scope of what we're dealing with. That's actually part of the problem is that you need to be inclusive of paper methods, which have huge, huge fraud and risk elements to them. Um, it's so easy to, uh, to uh, do a fake piece of paper um, into that mix. And that is the, uh, one of the inherent challenges um into that is like which is the true piece of paper related to these uh, old uh, processes so what i'm getting at there is a legal entity um what we're trying to achieve is traceability going back to making sure that the original property is not from proceeds of crime so there um who's in control of that entity needs to be traceable back to those that have beneficial ownership or control is the legal technical term into that mix. Um, and the way that's often done is through transparency, that you basically need to have it published with either a corporate registrar or, or documentation that's easily traceable back to the legal entity in all means. 
and traceable back to the signing officers or those that have control of that legal entity. So those are the pieces that it's the power of the relationships is quite critical. And there's different types of relationships. You could have some people that have ownership, other people have control, uh, other people could just be employees into the mix. Um, there's a variety of different nuances related to legal entities and they're changing on an ongoing basis and there's many of them. So it makes it far more complex. However, I think the way that we unpack that is high levels of insurance on each individual and then you leverage that to get a, a, a traceable record that that individual with that high level of assurance is saying, I have this role and responsibility and relationship with the core legal entity, and you sum them all together. And if we can get a good binding agent of that, then we have clarity of a high level of assurance of the legal entity itself. And Glyph and other tools like that are going to be very, very powerful to set that level playing field international. Now, one of the challenges that we do have, though, is no one's going to necessarily want honeypots of data all over the place because to have a high level of assurance of an individual, sometimes to have that traceability of that person without really good SSI models all over the world, um, already properly implemented, implemented with the same international standards, um, quite often there's a demand by... The, those running paper environments that you have transparency of a lot of personal and confidential information that can make that underlying beneficial owner susceptible to identity theft or other risks. They ask for their name, address, date of birth, um, taxation ID numbers. A lot of personal and confidential information is at being asked to be exposed and out in the open as opposed to using traceability tools back to reliable, trusted custodians. So those are some of the dynamics and the challenges is who do you trust really at the end of the day underneath the legal entity until we have these networks in. And I'm sure there's thousands of organizations that want to say, hey, I'll build it and then you can just trust me and I'll hold your honeypot for you. Doesn't quite work that way. Like everybody wants to do that. And this is a public infrastructure good. So and do, should you have to trust your government for that? And, and a lot of people say, no, I don't trust my government for that because the government is just a, a summation of multiple different trust custodians from all the different ministries, all the different environment, environments. And these records technically, by the letter of the law, are the records of the organization and not the records of the government. So those are the pieces is we have to get out of the mindset that it needs to be in honeypots all over the place. It needs to be that the honeypot should be the records of the business, which is what it is today. It's that book of records that you have. If you own a business, you know you have your articles in corporation in this big, thick binder. We need a digital version of that that is traceable, capable. And a lot of tools are being built like that today. Um, but the interoperability for the complexity is a challenge because there's a lot of different records, different forms, different types um, into that mix. But uh, hopefully we'll see um, things like that can work with um, the Canadian government's doing a lot of work right now in studying how can they do it in interoperable way, the minimum amount of information exchange between the federal government and the provinces. But as you've got 13 different groups around the table or a dozen different groups around the table, that could be a very big challenge and undertaking to, make, to have that interoperable model to expand the current status uh, of registries, which is solely officers and directors and expand it out to those that have control and ownership. So we, we touched upon financial crime, we touched upon digital ID, the intersection there. If we look at where the financial sector is going on its roadmap, um, and we, we could take examples from different areas in the world who have uh, taken a step forward over others is, is the whole area of uh, regulated open banking, right? And we, we have flavors of open banking. Um, I think open banking to some extent exists already. People keep asking, well, when is it coming? It exists. It's not, it's not necessarily regulated um, quite yet in Canada or, or in the US, but certain jurisdictions like the UK, they've been running regulated open banking for some years now, and they're seeing some good growth and good innovation coming out of that. Um, and so open banking is really about creating kind of an open data exchange or open framework between financial institutions at the consent of, of the consumer. Um, 
And so when we talk about digital identity, the digital identity enforces, could enforce security, privacy, it could enforce control, it could enforce consent. Um, is open banking and digital identity kind of the same thing? And can regulated open banking work without digital identity or better with digital identity? I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about how both digital identity and open banking kind of intertangle with each other. Uh, I, I personally think that there's a very, very important and strong correlation there. Um, and the reason why is that some of our most trusted custodians of information and identity are our financial institutions. Um, and how that information uh, flows is, is quite critical. Um, when we take a look at physical currency, getting back to that way back when of the non-traceable physical currency, um, the Bank of Canada uh, re produces reports on an ongoing basis of both the velocity, um, the, the frequency and the impact or volume of transactions based on different current um, uh, uh, mediums, whether it be by physical currency transactions or e overnight EFTs or real-time payments or the like. Um, and what they end up uh, calling out is that the use of physical currencies dropped or consistently um, out there, that uh, everything's electronic uh, into that mix, whether it be tap or, or, um, or other means. And checks also uh, have dropped uh, significantly into the mix. Open banking itself and digital ID, the, being the, the, the custodians of the banking system, and how we interact with it, every single interaction, you end up needing to know who you're dealing with, really, at the end of the day. So it is very much a chicken in the egg um, uh, scenario that if we had a stronger digital ID infrastructure, it would be easier and more reliable to interact with open banking. Uh, one example I'll give you is how do you confirm someone is still who they say they are, which is like really uh, authentication. It's um, so I, uh, identity uh, really is about knowing that they are who they say they are based on and creating that unique resolution and um, and having those traceable um, uh, sources through to other custodians of information. But when that same person comes back again, um, you already have performed that resolution. You already have those identifiers. So how do you just know that they are who they say they are again um, into the mix and that authentication uh, is, is equally important in the open banking model because in the past, we've always used secrets to do that. Tell me your password. And if you forgot your password here, let's keep some secrets on you. Of Tell me about the street that you grew up on and tell me this and tell me that, that were often the behind the scenes credit bureau type of uh, out of wallet questions is what they were nicknamed in the sector. And those tools need to go away uh, because there are no more secrets between uh, social media data mining, social engineering, uh, corruptions that have happened within our financial institutions that we don't know about, um, and corruptions that we do know about. Um, and thankfully, most larger scale financial institutions have moved away from secrets um, and are using are moving towards uh, device methods and other pieces. And that was critical for open banking to to be successful and powerful, in my view. Because what I like the term, the reframing of this in the Canadian marketplace is calling it customer directed finance. And what that is really about is that the customer then can share their information as reasonable to, also, to multiple different sources. And that information could just be even, um, let's say, loyalty programs. Instead of having to have 10, 000, uh, five different loyalty cards in your wallet, why can't you just have an app do that that demonstrates that? When you go to um, a particular uh, um, supermarket or you go to a particular pharmacy or something along those lines, that you are a loyal customer. Well, you could do that through open banking quite a lot faster and a lot easier um, than rather than having to tap a card every single time. And sometimes it's embedded and, and connected with your credit cards and, and things along those lines, but you shouldn't necessarily be bound uh, to multi-relationships for that. So these are some of the uh, these amazing capabilities is it, um, it can talk about spending pat, uh, patterns and give you financial coaches that are built in. There's a lot of great tools that open banking will do, but it's also relationships. If you have those 10 loyalty relationships, I've got a lot of loyalty, let's say, to uh, home renovation stores because I go there a lot and I love them. Um, and it's a lot of fun. 
And they value that, right? They want me to come to their home renovation store versus the competition. And they want to reward those customers and know who those customers are to help do that. I want them to reward me. I'd rather have that extra discount um, into that mix. And open banking tools uh, can stretch across every aspect of our economy to improve efficiency and effectiveness into that mix. And those trusted relationships can help in that traceability of proceeds of crime. If I'm moving money back and forth because I'm doing renovations all the time, well, like, how does that look like compared to other proceeds of crime typologies and everything else? You don't want to have your bank wasting time on on looking at these 10,000 transactions and trying to figure out, does this is this person trying to um, like uh, be a like perform some illegal acts or something like that? Uh, you want to be able to to rely on that richness of data to confirm, is this a shadow business or is this a real business in order to get away from the, to, to, to make sure it's not a criminal enterprise? Like, am I a one-time renovation person or am I somebody that has four sets of books and I'm, and I'm using the renovation exercise in order to launder proceeds of crime, right? So in, in, into that mix. So open banking is, uh, has a great deal of power to help uh, confirm our identity and traceability and um, in the most efficient risk-based approach tied to our level of assurance, that concept comes back again. Um, and it has the ability to empower open banking. Um, one, one last piece I'll, I'll touch on this. You mentioned about the UK and Europe. In Europe, they're, they're, they've got PSD2, which is both sides of not just information collection and management, but also payment control is, is because they have a heavy, heavy regulatory framework. So they do have the ability to um, code to it and, and abide by it, but you have a huge compliance regime that has its own burden around it. So there, will that slow down innovation? That is the question, because someone, someone may come up with a great new innovative idea, but it breaks all the rules. So they can't do it. Um, and they have heavy sticks if you break the rules. You're not playing in that sandpit. In the UK, if you're going to receive information as a third-party administrator, you need to be regulated. You are um, adding a huge new layer of regulation and rules in order to get that information to build those widgets, widgets. And that costs money. And that money cost may impact the innovation capability to see whether if it's a profitable venture, because there may be so much compliance burden in being that, um, that, that uh, new custodian of identity information that it wouldn't be profitable, that they wouldn't be able to do it. Um, if, if the Facebooks of the world, for example, had the level of due diligence and rigor for every Facebook account that uh, at the same level playing field as a bank has, uh, for tracing your, your personal information, as well as your property, um, who, uh, I don't think it would have been as profitable for Facebook to be the, ma- the massive player that it is today. If it had to do that level of KYC and due diligence for every single networking account, then it would have been way too expensive and they wouldn't have been able to generate likely enough ad revenue to get their their feet off the ground and build the network that they did. So those are some of the inherent challenges is how do you strike that right balance and leverage that investment? And also, how does the bank recoup that investment? They're investing money in identifying you and knowing and tracing you who you are. So how do they do all that? Those are the pieces that'll be an interesting challenge into this mix. And the banks are not resistant to open banking per se from a competitive standpoint. They're, they're willing to compete, but they want to compete with other people that are at the same playing field. Um, so I think those are some of the inherent challenges and nuances into this mix. And, uh, and, and we also have to see what standards come about as that baseline. It's then interesting to think that we're, I guess today we're in the read-only model meaning that we're able to do screen scraping and stuff like that to, to do kind of um, enhanced type of user experiences for, for consumers, whereas kind of in, in the UK and in Europe, they have more of a, it's not a read-only model, but it's a read-write model where you could actually perform tasks like initiate payments, basically, um, and through PSD2, like, like you described. Um, in, in North America, if we're still in this read-only model, I think there's a lot of advancements that are happening to move towards a model that um, makes it more regulated. Um, there are different organizations working on different uh, APIs or, or mechanisms that uh, financial data could be shared 
So the OpenID Foundation is working on the financial grade API, often referred to as FAPI, F-A-P-I, the acronym. There's also an organization called the, the Financial Data Exchange, a non-for-profit standards body operating in the US and Canada. And they also have an API, the FDX API. Um, for, for folks that maybe aren't as aware um, in this space as perhaps I, I would be as well, I, I'm a little bit aware, but can't go too, too deep in, into it. So at this point, what's happening um, in kind of creating the, these APIs and like, what is some of the cool work that the OpenID Foundation is doing and FDX is doing? And how does that get us closer to having regulated open banking in North America? Um, I, I think there's a great mix of questions in there. Um, and it's also a great mix of challenges. And, and I think um, just as we talked about a bit earlier that transparency um, is uh, versus traceability is, uh, is uh, using the right uh, uh, word into the mix is uh, what is the priority? Um, I, I think the, when we're talking about this topic of um, there's different modules and standards and capabilities, um, I think uh, the, the mix here is um, the, or the, the trade-off here that is the latest trend that I've seen in the last two years um, that is uh, being adjusted is to go from international standards to interoperability. Um, and interoperability um, really calls out that regardless if you decide to use the OpenID Exchange's uh, FAPI or financial grade API, or the FDX um, uh, the tools or other uh, some of the other tools that you'd called out. One of the key challenges is, um, are they all operating at the same level of integrity underneath? Are they all collecting the right amount of information to confirm that the traceability of the sources are reasonable? And are they all playing by um, uh, the same enough uh, or equivalent enough rigor and traceability that allows its participants to stay above board in their local regulations and laws, which is a moving target. Um, and the local in, in the Canadian marketplace, for example, there is a report um, the, that was commissioned by the Department of Finance that came out and that report had a recommendation that by early next year, early 2023, that we have um, an open banking uh, infrastructure uh, or a customer directed finance infrastructure that all banks and financial institutions would have to play by um, would be in place uh, by that point. And uh, some of those pieces may, may just elect that, um, that all of the players need to just pick one of these standards, or if they pick a different standard, then they need to have an ability to have uh, a technology solution that can bridge that gap. Uh, so that interoperability play is a super hot topic. There was an APAC session just a, uh, a day ago, uh, just yesterday, um, and that, that really had this as a big focus of that session with a lot of main players of how do you have interoperability across uh, the Asia Pacific region that Canada and US are a member of um, in making sure that these things are all uh, a good free flow into that mix. And sometimes that could um, be done easily by just saying, okay, well, we'll all pick one standard. But then um, some organizations may find uh, that that may not necessarily be the right solution if they've already done an investment in another standard. So you just need to find a way to have them translate to each other, which is the beauty of technology. But what are those minimum uh, categories is, is, um, is going to be, I think, a bit of a challenge for open banking. And the reason why is like you'll have Europe whereby they want uh, to have it at that PSD2 level with heavy regulations, but that may be considered stifling to those in the US or other jurisdictions. So I, <clears throat> I think those are the pieces. It's still a moving target and it's hard to keep on top of. And sorry, I don't have a silver bullet answer for you there of uh, which one to do. I, I think the short answer is it, it is a heavy investment. Uh, stay tuned and keep watching. Um, and, uh, and I think those are areas that uh, we have some great opportunities that there's been a lot, a lot more sessions like this coming out over the next six months. I know I'm participating in an open banking um, conference in, in a month's time and, and it's a full two days of, of, of topics. So it's hard to sum that up in five minutes. I feel like each one of these questions could be a, an entire uh, report uh, on their own that, that they're 
not easy things, but I guess just closing the loop on the conversation here and tying this back to uh, money laundering. Will, do you foresee, I guess, financial crime regulators facing new top challenges and setting standards and monitoring and supervising the risks that could emerge from open banking kind of as a result of the disaggregation of um, traditional banking value chains and I guess the, the corresponding need for financial institutions to manage more relationships, more agents, more sub-agents. Um, do, do you see this kind of creating new challenges for financial crime regulators? I see it as both a benefit and a challenge. And, and one of the things that I'll just call out is what happens if a financial institution um, or an organization that uh, is has responsibility to leverage the information provided by a client to detect financial crime. And in the world of customer-directed finance and open banking, you've got a flood of data, an absolute immense flood of data. What happens if you're not analyzing that data and you don't detect it? And it has a whole bunch of typographies that are aligned with a criminal enterprise. Like how much do you need to monitor your client is gonna be a challenge. So, for example, um, there are certain typologies that types of transactions may lead towards uh, uh, reasonable suspicion that the person could have ties to human trafficking. Um, and uh, some of those typologies include, like, there's obvious ones of, of um, motel stays that are constantly rotating and they're not a sales rep that's on a roadshow. <laughs> um, and uh, like, the, quite often transactions have the counterpiece, right? So you can... Like, for example, there could be a whole bunch of motel stays and they could be a hockey mom um, <clears throat> or a hockey dad um, that they're driving their kids to all these different tournaments. So sometimes things make sense, but other times they don't. Um, that if you end up seeing that together with a whole bunch of other um, parallel transactions that may come into the flow with customer directed finance, you have more data you have to analyze, not just your transactions data, but other data. So what happens if in that combination of data, there is a crime typology underneath that. That's a lot more work. And that's a lot more work that is, that you may say, oh, well, you're a financial institution, you can afford it, you're a gatekeeper, that's a cost of doing business. But then it's, then it's multiplied, right? So if, if one person has five different bank accounts and they're using open banking tools, um, or not even five, let's just say three bank accounts and they're using open banking tools across them. Does that mean three financial institutions are now monitoring and keeping a high level oversight of all of their activity and all of them are doing reports to FinTrack and all of them, which are our financial analysis center that the government runs, um, that it has to, uh, like, like what happens there, right? Like, like how much resources are being spent to track that hockey mom to make sure that she's now, now, not a victim of human trafficking or, um, or not perpetrating uh, human tra trafficking into the mix. So um, the plethora of information will definitely, getting back to your starting point of technology and tools, like you're going to have to invest in the technology and tools to now assess not only your own records, but other records and data that you have access to, to make sure that it's, that it's reasonable. And those tools, and especially with a lot of the different uh, um, artificial intelligence, advanced filtering type tool capabilities, are going to be a necessity. They're not going to be a nice to have uh, for the riskiest of clients that you're going to drill down. It's going to be uh, a need, not a want. Um, and it's not going to be a best practice. It's going to be a minimum standard is likely where we're going to go to, which is going to be a lot more expensive for every organization to work with. So now, how did those financial institutions stay afloat? And, 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 how does, and where did those costs go? those costs will go to back to the consumer inevitably um, into that mix. So these are going to be some interesting nuances into the mix of what happens with open banking and do the regulator perspectives change? Um, what is reasonable to know and what is uh, reasonable facts um, and, and who's supposed to do that analysis? Um, and should that analysis be at the regulator side or should be to others? And, um, and how much information should go centrally to FinTrack and uh, to prevent it from being Big Brother? Uh, right now, the thing that prevents it from being Big Brother is there needs to be a, a legal threshold of reasonable grounds to suspect that something has ties to money laundering before you send information to FinTrack. Um, and, 
what does that threshold look like in the plethora of information that consumer-directed finance is coming in is going to be a debate that we're going to see as this becomes a reality over the next two years. So uh, definitely going to be an, uh, uh, an ongoing, exciting topic. Maybe we do this again in one year and you could say, Gene, how did it change? Did you predict anything there? I would love to do that. And I think anyone interested in building new technology, I think there's tons of opportunities as we've discussed today in the intersection of digital ID and, and money laundering and the intersection of money laundering and open banking and digital ID and open banking. I think there's going to be a plethora of uh, opportunities to create uh, value in there. So anyone interested in starting a, a new business, uh, feel free to reach out. would love to, to, to learn more about your idea in those areas. Gene, thank you so much for doing this with me today. It was a pleasure. And uh, let's do this again in a year and see where we're at. Great. Thanks, Matt. Uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To step to speed with future episodes, or to catch up on ones you may have missed, make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzger Glowed on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.